0: Seven, six, five, four. Command engine start. Two, one.
1: Shepard cleared the tower. And New Shepard has cleared the tower. On our way to space with our first human crew. Go, Jeff. Go.
2: Among the many initiatives of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is his launch of the first-ever privately-owned vessel into space. The rocket and capsule took Bezos and three other civilians into suborbital space for just over 10 minutes in 2021.
3: The most profound piece of it for me was looking out at the Earth and looking at the Earth's atmosphere. Every astronaut, everybody who's been up into space... They say this, that it changes them and they look at it and they're kind of amazed and, and awestruck by the Earth and its beauty, but
1: also by its fragility.
2: Bezos' vessel was named the New Shepard after NASA astronaut Alan Shepard, who commanded the first-ever suborbital spaceflight for the United States 50 years earlier, in 1961. But the name New Shepard has a second ring to it, an undercurrent of religious feeling. After all, for Christians, Jesus is the shepherd bringing believers towards salvation. Space has long been an arena for American fantasy and fascination, a fascination partly fueled by an American Christian religious conviction that space travel is our national destiny. Just before Buzz Aldrin stepped foot on the moon, he partook of sacramental bread and wine as part of a Christian communion ceremony.
0: During the radio blackout, I prepared the bread and the wine. As I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me, the one-sixth gravity of the moon caused the liquid to curl slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. Then I read the scripture which I had chosen to indicate our trust in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me.
2: This is Illuminations, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas about the complex and captivating relationship between religion and science. Many Americans have long believed that God destined them to expand, first to the so-called New World, then to the continental West, and ultimately to the final frontier of outer space. In this episode, we look at the American Christian idea of Manifest Destiny and the role that religious imagination has played in shaping American space exploration. We examine how Christianity made space travel imaginable in the early 1900s, how Cold War religious fervor compelled Americans to explore and claim space in the 1960s, and how space travel today ignites a yearning for these past eras of American expansion. Long before Bezos shot for the moon, explorers were driven by religious conviction. For millennia, readers of the Hebrew scriptures hunted for the original site of the Garden of Eden, described as located at the convergence of four primordial rivers. So when Christopher Columbus saw the South American mouth of the Orinoco River leading out onto the Atlantic, he was primed to believe he had discovered one of the four rivers of paradise.
0: It had long been rumored, thought, that the Garden of Eden actually existed someplace on the earth. And the lushness of the landscape, especially in the Caribbean and in northern South America that he visited, he speculated that he might, in fact, have arrived in the Garden of Eden.
2: That's Professor Joni Kinsey from the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History on Christopher Columbus's first voyage to the Americas.
0: That notion of... The new world as an Eden continued intermittently in many different ways over generations of explorers, settlers, and otherwise. Certainly the abstraction of an Edenic paradise that could be developed for a new phase of human history was something that persisted. And certainly by the beginnings of the new American Republic with the American Revolution and the formation of our constitution and so forth, this idea continued, maybe not literally, but certainly as a a notion that was an ideal for the new American nation.
2: European settlers saw the North American continent as a place where they could worship freely, a refuge from religious persecution and a chance to form new governments and exercise their divinely given natural rights. Realizing the full potential of this new Eden required exploring the land and conquering it. Initially, that meant the eastern shores, but eventually, the colonists shifted their gaze westward. The American western frontier was not just a physical landscape, ripe with natural resources. It was also a metaphysical one.
0: The American West has a special kind of vastness that was often likened to the sublime. And the sublime in that understanding is in many ways related to its sense of scale, its sense of enormity, the vastness of it, the rawness of it in many places, the extremes that it characterizes. And it was all intermingled with understandings of God. that This was in fact a kind of new Eden. That was a concept that dates all the way back to Columbus, that the new world was a kind of new Eden that um, was the ultimate blessing on humanity. And ultimately, in the 19th century, mingled with notions of manifest destiny, which are in themselves, are both quasi-religious, a kind of providential provision of bounty and blessings to the American nation,
2: European settlers believed that it was not only their right, but their divinely mandated duty to conquer first the coast of New England, then the Ohio River Valley, and then the American West. As God had promised and bestowed the land of Israel to the ancient Hebrews, so too God would grant European Christians with this vast new land if they were willing to explore and claim it. This general concept would become known as Manifest Destiny. Here's Professor Catherine Newell.
3: My name is Catherine L. Newell. Uh, I am an associate professor of religion and science at the University of Miami, and I wrote the book, Destined for the Starts, Faith, the Future, and America's Final Frontier. So Manifest Destiny is another one of those kind of slippery terms that has been used in many different ways as... As far as kind of pinning it down in terms of American history, some people say, you know, it's very closely aligned with uh, mid-19th century proclamations that America, the young country, should expand at west. It's our destiny. America as a new Israel, et cetera, et cetera.
2: The nation's second president, John Adams, declared that American territorial expansion was the will of heaven. His successor, Thomas Jefferson, Expanded the nation to nearly double its size in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. President Jefferson bought part or all of the 15 current states in the Midwest from the colonial French government and sent exploratory surveys to quote unquote discover this land. These surveys were equipped with guides, explorers, and artists who were there specifically to capture the sublime vastness of the American West. The paintings produced in tandem with these expeditions are iconic. Artists depicted the West on massive canvases, showing cavernous Yellowstone in Yosemite Valley and the towering Sierra Nevada mountains. The paintings were intended to let the American people see their newly acquired territories with realist scientific precision. But they were also supposed to enable the American people to feel the West, feel the awe that the explorers themselves felt. The artists were tasked with nothing less than depicting the experience of the transcendent, the divine grandeur of the American West. Scientific descriptions alone were unable to convey the beauty and majesty of the land, and therefore were unable to create the popular support necessary for continued explorations and investment in infrastructure. The West was replete with coal, oil, and other precious minerals. Magnates of industry were desperate for an efficient way to get workers out west and goods back east. They wanted a railroad. But this meant convincing Congress and the American public to invest in this very expensive project. So they didn't just frame the railroad as an economic enterprise, but as a holy one. Americans needed to believe that this landscape was part of their divine expansionist destiny. Asa Whitney was a dry goods merchant who wanted to expand his company's reach. He was also among the key figures promoting the development of the railroad. In 1845, Whitney argued that a transcontinental railroad would give America an opportunity to spread Christianity worldwide, trading in both goods and American values. Whitney wrote, You
1: will see that it will change the whole world, allow us to traverse the globe in 30 days, civilize and Christianize mankind and place us at the center of the world, compelling Europe on one side and Asia and Africa on the other to pass through us."
2: The economist and clergyman, Reverend Calvin Colton, agreed, calling the Transcontinental Railroad the Grand Machinery of Providence. Expansionists framed the project as a fulfillment of human potential, a milestone of human history. One influential Missouri lawyer named John Loughborough argued as a delegate to the United States Railroad Convention, that the railroad would bring about the permanent, uniform, and final condition of humanity. Congress bought into this vision. The federal government chose to finance not one, but two routes across the newly United States by railroad. Later, during the Mexican-American War in the late 1840s, journalist John O'Sullivan wrote that America had a divine destiny to continue expanding its boundaries to annex Texas from Mexico. For O'Sullivan, continued expansion would benefit the entire world. The far-reaching, the boundless future will be the era of American greatness. In its magnificent domain of space and time,
0: the nation of many nations is destined to manifest to mankind the excellence of divine principles to establish on earth the noblest temple ever dedicated to the
1: worship of the Most High.
2: But the Western frontier was not the last American New Israel. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Popular support for American Western expansion was fueled in part by powerful artistic images. The American journey into space followed a similar trajectory. Before Americans had any plausible plan for traveling there, they devoured artists' images of space. The most important space artist was a man named Chesley Bonestell. Bonestell was born in the late 1800s, at a time when the U.S. was only 38 United States. The Transcontinental Railroad had been completed, and the prairie lands of the American West had been resettled with European farmers. San Francisco was a new center of American industry, and Bonestell was born into that city's burgeoning elite class. From his position on the western edge of the continental United States, Bonestell looked up to the stars. Some historians say that Bonestell was taken in by San Jose's Lick Observatory and sketched the stars as a teenager, yearning for a bigger and more wondrous world. In his first career as an architectural draftsman, his job was creating hyper-realistic depictions of buildings he worked on projects like the Chrysler Building in New York City and the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Then, Hollywood called. Bonestell's skill as an architect suited the needs of the silver screen for hyper-realistic, imaginary spaces. He quickly became a master of special effects, namely the matte prints behind the actors. Before green screens and digital movie magic, live-action film required painted sets to build the backdrops for the world of the live actors in the shot. These mats needed to look real enough to seamlessly map onto the action of the movie. Bonestell's first film project was Citizen Kane, directed by and starring Orson Welles. That movie spent more on matte production than any other live-action film at the time. Citizen Kane is set at Xanadu, a private mountain home of the fictionalized newspaper magnate Charles Foster Kane.
0: Legendary was the Xanadu, where Kublai Khan decreed his stately pleasure dome. Today, almost as legendary as Florida's Xanadu, world's largest private pleasure ground. Here on the deserts of the Gulf Coast, a private mountain was commissioned and successfully built. 100,000 trees, 20,000 tons of marble are the ingredients of Xanadu's mountain.
2: still developed the look for Xanadu in all its opulence, with statues of knights on horseback and castle trellises. The mansion starts in the background of the set and slowly gets closer over the course of the film as the main character comes to understand the meaning of Kane's mysterious last words. And Xanadu was just one site of American escapist fantasies. Space had taken on a primary role in the American imagination. Lecturers in science were making the rounds across the U.S. sharing the latest research about the distance between the stars and the size of the solar system. Amateur astronomers were lining up to peek at the night sky through observatory telescopes, as was Bonestel himself. And yet Bonestel felt that the current depictions of the planets didn't match the best of scientific knowledge about the nature of the galaxy. He thought he could do better. And his background in architecture and imaginative art was exactly the training he needed.
1: So he... Is really able to contribute, you know, angles of perspective, right, that look natural to the human eye when we're looking at something in two dimensions. Uh, and the other thing that he starts doing is incorporating elements of photo collage. My name is Lois Rawson, and I just wrapped up a dissertation on the history of astronomical illustration in the United States over the course of the 20th century. And I am now a research fellow at the Berggruen Institute in Southern California.
2: Using his skills in realistic rendering, Bonestell created his Saturn series using a mixture of photography and painting.
1: He would construct models out of like dirt and rocks that he would find in his backyard um, and then photograph them. He would tweak the lighting and then photograph them. And then sometimes he would just paste the photographs onto the illustration board uh, that he was working on and then just paint on top of them and sort of tease out the relevant details where necessary, Um, which I actually think is very poetic because, you know, Bonestell inevitably gets, you know, sort of looped into these conversations about space as a type of Western frontier. And here you have his illustrations that are actually quite literally made out of the American West, but it's not just the American West generally, it's actually made out of Los Angeles.
2: The Saturn series was featured in Life Magazine in 1944, as World War II was reaching its bloody climax. The images were a welcome break from warfare and bloodshed. Life Magazine released three of Bonestell's images of Saturn as seen from its moons, alongside grainy black and white photographs of Saturn taken from the Lowell Observatory.
1: The idea behind the set of paintings is that um, you get different views of Saturn from its different moons. Um, So Saturn is seen from Titan is the most famous of these paintings, right? You get the sense of the viewer as you sort of look through these images, right? That you're getting to see this planet from different vantage points in a way that's more clear and compelling than the actual photographs that are included with the article,
2: The photographs showed a fuzzy mass in the sky, a small black-and-white blur that represented Saturn. Bonestell's pictures provided a whole different experience. Using the best available science, he helped the viewer imagine what it might look like to see Saturn up close, what the ground might feel like beneath your feet, and how the texture of the air might be crisp and dry from a lack of oxygen or water. Bonestell augmented them, making his renditions, in one sense, more accurate than the technical photos because they express not just the planet as captured by 1940s outer space photography, but the feeling of being in space. A Californian himself, Bonestell had been born into the end of the American frontier. He carried that ethos with him as he depicted humanity's final frontier. The landscapes Bonestell imagined looked not unlike New Mexico or maybe the outskirts of Los Angeles. Space was no longer just a black morass behind the calm of the night sky, but a real, tangible place filled with rocks and sand and vistas of planets near and far. With the author William Lay, Bonestell published 58 of his space renderings as the book The Conquest of Space. The book detailed how mankind would reach and explore outer space, describing the known planets, the look and sound of a rocket ship, and the feeling of walking on the moon. Bonestell and Lay brought to the American public a visceral experience of space travel. They presented a version of space that felt reachable, even touchable, and most importantly, conquerable.
3: In 1949, Chesley Bonestell and Willie Lay publish The Conquest of Space, and they are uh, very much looking back and sort of deploying this not necessarily intentionally religious nostalgia, but in their use of ideas of manifest destiny and terms like conquest of, they are very much sort of uh, using this very idealized version of uh, the history of westward expansion and laying it over the project of their book.
2: A year later, Bonestell did the set design for the iconic 1950 science fiction film, Destination Moon. In the film, aircraft magnate Jim Barnes convinces other industrialists to invest in space travel by likening it to the glorious explorations
1: of the past. It's research, it's pioneering. What's the moon? Another North Pole, another South Pole. Our only satellite, our nearest neighbor in the sky.
2: Bonestel succeeded at getting people excited about space exploration. His art brought Americans from space curious to space craving. Seeking the experience of the sublime, Historians of science would later call his Saturn series, the painting that launched a thousand careers. In the aftermath of World War II, the United States commissioned a group of German physicists to develop advanced spaceflight technologies for NASA. Their hard work resulted in the United States designing the first rocket to reach the edge of space in 1946. These space ventures transformed the American imagination. As the ideological and scientific rivalry with the Soviet Union heated up, space travel provided an opportunity to showcase the success of American ideals of religion, democracy, and natural rights, as well as its capacity for innovation and ingenuity. It also generated wonder, laced with nostalgia for the American western frontier. America was built on divinely mandated expansion, first westward and finally upward, towards the moon and Mars. Space travel was a unifying force among a diverse American people. It didn't matter which religion, race, or party you belonged to. This vision of space travel could speak to you if you had faith in God and faith in America. Russia matched the American space missions of the late 1940s, sending a dog into space in 1951 and demonstrating their ballistic missile capacity a few years later. The United States responded, by taking pictures from space and launching an orbital solar observatory. In 1952, Chesley Bonestell worked with leading rocket scientists and physicists to develop an entire issue of Collier's magazine devoted to space travel. The magazine described reaching the moon as crossing the last frontier of human progress and achievement. Scientists wrote that they were seeking to open the heavens, to reach past this side of infinity and that the quest for the moon would be like an exciting expedition to the American Western frontier. The magazine issue was so wildly popular that it was turned into a book. Colliers went on to do three more issues just about space travel and future astronauts. Space travel was not just technological progress. Like westward exploration before it, it held a special place in the American religious imagination.
3: Very idealized, I think I said before, sanitized version that is adopted by some of the early space proselytizers saying what we did in westward expansion, we can now reproduce by going first to the moon and then to Mars and then to the rest of the solar system, if not the galaxy, that they very sort of deliberately tried to set in motion some of those same beliefs, some of that same faith Uh, Revitalize that kind of quote-unquote cultural fashion in order to uh, deploy it in the service of making outer space someplace that people
2: wanted to go. Americans did want to visit outer space, a fantasy that theme parks and media worked to satisfy.
1: One of a man's oldest dreams has been the desire for space travel, to travel to other worlds. Until recently, this seemed to be an impossibility. But great new discoveries have brought us to the threshold of a new frontier. The frontier of interplanetary space.
2: The reading, viewing, and daydreaming public was thoroughly obsessed with space by the end of the 1950s. In 1955, Walt Disney launched Tomorrowland, a theme park inspired by Collier's magazine that focused on the future of civilization and especially space travel. Tomorrowland stood right next to Disney's western-themed park, Frontierland. By the end of the 1950s, American media was rife with space travel. There was an American superhero who came from outer space.
0: It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman!
2: There was Star Trek. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission. To explore strange new worlds. To seek
0: out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before.
2: And finally, in 1969, there was the moon landing itself. Millions tuned in as Apollo 11 brought Americans down to the moon's surface for the first time. The landing was broadcast in a then-record 36 languages. President Nixon spoke directly to the astronauts.
1: For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join
0: with the in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, The heavens have become a part of man's
2: world. During the Cold War, religious faith was one of the primary ways that Americans distinguished themselves from the Soviet Russians. America espoused capitalism and democracy. The USSR embraced communism. Americans were free. The Soviets imposed authoritarian rule. And the USSR wanted to stamp out religious belief while America was a country of faith.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. I would rather see my little girls die now, still
3: believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God.
2: President Reagan saw American religion as the core of American identity and success. But Cold War American faith and religion was deeper than just one president. In
0: 1954,
2: President Eisenhower added Under God to the United States Pledge of Allegiance. He wanted to emphasize that America was not just a Christian country, per se, but a country united by faith. Here is President Eisenhower a few months later at his January 1955 State of the Union address. And so I know in my heart, and I believe that all Americans know, that despite the anxieties of this divided world,
3: our faith and the cause in which we all believe will surely prevail the way in which American religion functioned at the time was that anybody could practice any particular faith and belonging to a religion was a very important part of being an American. However, the ways in which that religion functioned in an individual's life was uh, something that he saw kind of across the board in all different denominations and all different religions. And that was the importance of belief and what he came to call faith in faith. And that it was this sort of tautological principle that showed up again. It didn't matter if somebody was Jewish or Roman Catholic, that they had this, what he felt very uniquely American, Faith in the power of belief and the importance of believing in something.
2: For Newell, this concept of faith in faith, developed by American intellectual Will Herberg, is critical to understanding how religious imagination propelled American space travel. Religious faith was one more value that made America superior to the Soviets. Space exploration was a crucial way for America to prove the success of its values and the reality of its divine mandate to expand. Both Americans and Russians, along with other nations, have now been flying to space for more than half a century, funded with trillions of taxpayer dollars. The Transcontinental Railroad created enormous economic opportunity, enabling the growth of the United States' port and shipping industries with major hubs in Southern California from Japan, China, and Korea to this day. Space travel has yet to realize similar gains, and even prospectors of space colonization and moon rock mining are likely decades away from the technology necessary to make good on their plans. Still, space fervor keeps reigniting. As Americans sheltered in place during the pandemic, science fiction books were swept off the shelves as people craved escape and imaginative exploration. Sales of fantasy and sci-fi books increased 45% in 2021. People stuck at home wanted the escape, the possibility of other worlds and other futures to distract them from a crumbling government and terrifying pandemic. The nation also watched transfixed as first Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and later Tesla CEO Elon Musk launched private rockets into orbit. Millions registered for a lottery to take civilians to space, even though it required them to acknowledge that they may never return. Tonight, history made. The first all-civilian flight to orbit the Earth has blasted off. Even more Americans turned into the live stream of the first rover mission to Mars.
0: We want to take you now to Cape Canaveral, Florida, where NASA is launching its Perseverance rover to Mars.
2: For Katherine Newell, the intensifying interest in space, led by private industry, signals a nostalgic return to the religiously inflected idealism that motivated space exploration in the 1950s. Americans in the Trump era, as during the Cold War, felt politically unstable and wanted something to hope for and believe in. The idea of a divinely granted destiny of American expansion felt comforting and exciting once again.
3: People had such faith that we were going to have colonies on Mars, that we were going to mine the asteroid belts. We have movies that are still kind of valorizing this idea of being some of the first people to get to new places and see these spaces for themselves. So it's very much, I think, nostalgically employing ideas from the 1940s and 1950s and laying them onto us here in the 21st century.
2: There are many reasons why President Nixon would have wanted to send Americans to the moon. A moon landing could mean limiting enemy capacity to launch missiles from outer space. It would demonstrate the United States' technical prowess to the world, and especially to Russia. It would prove that democracy, Christianity, and capitalistic individualism could foster the highest levels of innovation and progress. Modern business leaders see space as a potential site for commercial industry, as Jeff Bezos noted.
3: We need to build a road to space so that our children can build the future. We need to take all polluting industry all heavy industry, and move it off Earth. This is going to take many decades.
2: But alongside the story of political and economic gain, there's another, more complicated story. What really helped make space travel imaginable and irresistible was a sense of the sublime. When Bonestell produced his images of Saturn, the American public began to believe that a moon landing was America's destiny. That public support helped put Buzz Aldrin on the moon, as did the myth that America had a divine destiny to continuously expand. No wonder Nixon would now claim the heavens.
3: One of the biggest quote-unquote science projects that America has ever assigned itself, the U.S. space program, is just interlaced with religious feeling whether it's at the level of individuals with their generalized notions of faith and destiny or if it is actually something deeply tied to say an evangelical christian notion of god uh, expecting us to go to other planets and extend settlements and save humanity in these ways, or if it's much more of a kind of uh, agnostic, and this is in some ways what Chesley Bonasel represents, a kind of agnostic belief that science is itself a kind of... Uh, not just method of understanding, but a means by which we can really create a new future for ourselves. And having faith in that as an institution is its own sort of reflection of the culture in which people like Bonestell grew up in, that I argue is in many ways very American.
2: The story of American space travel is not a story of science alone. This project is built on a history of manifest destiny. The nation is fueled by a particularly American sense that the divine awaits in the wilderness and at the frontier, at the edge of the horizon, or wherever we seek to conquer next. This episode was produced by Leah Rechtman. Illuminations is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. We are supported by Harvard Divinity School and the John Templeton Foundation. Illuminations is produced by me, Zachary Davis, Leah Rechtman, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Nick Anderson. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa, and artwork is by Dan Pecci. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of carefully crafted, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. And since this episode was about space travel, I'd like to invite you to listen to the Hub & Spoke show, Soonish. Hosted by journalist, Wade Roush, Soonish deploys sharp analysis and humane values to examine how technology is changing society. Learn more and listen soonishpodcast.org Had and Spoke Audio Collective